You're listening to Trek FM. Want to join in the conversation and share your thoughts on this episode? Join the Babel Conference, our listeners' discussion group on Facebook. Just type B-A-B-E-L into the Facebook search field, and we look forward to seeing you there. This is Steve Sansweet of Rancho Obi-Wan, and you're listening to the 602 Club. There was a little bar in Mill Valley where all the Starfleet trainees used to go. The 602 Club. You know it. <laughs> I was there more times than I can remember. And the world was more beautiful than I ever dreamed. And also more dangerous than I ever imagined. Hop in bed now, Come on. Now, I met a brave warrior. Tron. Bum, 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 bum. Tron. He fights for the users. <laughs> he sure does. Oh, man, he showed me things that no one had ever imagined. There are these disc battles fought in spectacular arenas and cycles that raced on ribbons of light. So radical. And together... You built the grid. We built a new grid for programs and users. Now, I couldn't be in there all the time, so I created a program in my own image that could think like you and me. And I called him... Clue. Codified likeness utility. That's right. And Clue, Tron, and I, we, we built a system where all information was free and open. It's beautiful. And then, one day, something happened. Something extraordinary. A miracle. What was it? That'll have to wait until next time. I gotta get to work. I wanna go with you, Dad. Yeah, well, one day you will. I promise. To the crib? <laughs> Good night, Sam. Hey, what do you say? Tomorrow, you and I hit the arcade. You can have a crack at the old man's high score. First game's on me. Can we play doubles on the same team? We're always on the same team. Welcome back to the 602 Club. I am your host here, Matthew Rushing. I'm very excited to be here for the show. You know what? I probably say that every show I'm always very excited because I really always am. It's not a joke. I, I have been actually waiting to do this episode for a long time now, um, because this is a movie that I really, really enjoy. So I guess I just spoiled it. I guess we can wrap up. Um, thanks, guys, for being here. We didn't really have anything to talk about. <laughs> there you go. Um, but uh, I had to have two amazing individuals to talk about this film. Um, two, I would say, paragons of cinema virtue. And so with me is the one and only Brandon Shamatella, all the way up north from Canada. Take off, eh? Yeah, that's right, eh? Yeah, you got your coffee and uh, some Tim Wharton's? Yeah, you bet it, man. And I got myself some uh, some good old de-rezzing. I don't know. <laughs> oh, I, I, I'm not again? I'm not on my game right now. 
Again? Uh, yeah, apparently not. That's okay. Um, but we're not here to talk about that. Tonight, we're going to be diving into Tron Legacy, which is what had me so excited because this is a film that I have absolutely adored since it came out. Uh, so I'm going to say that right up front. And I think, um, I do think that you two gentlemen also felt the same way about the movie. Yes, uh, it, hands down. I, I actually saw this um, in Limax. I, I remember the movie theater where I saw it. I saw it with my cousin. Um, and I actually, uh, you know, because uh, back, the, you know, I, I actually paid for the 3D showing too because I was a sucker back then. Um, but I remember... Hey, the 3D in this film was amazing. It was. Though. You know what? I mean, that, can we can we just say that? Like, the, it was so good. Yes. I, a film like this, 3D works because there's there are so many layers and effects, you know, going on. And, you know, blue screen stuff and everything like that. So it's easier to separate out the depth sort of thing. So, you know... That that was that was all well and good, but I remember, I actually remember the scene where I realized how much I was in love with it, and I still like every time I revisit this. This was this is one of the first Blu-rays I got a hold of um, that I could, and I got um, I got my kids to watch it, and my kids loved it, and everything like that. And every time I've watched it, I'm just captivated. This isn't a movie where like I can watch like a couple of scenes and I'm like done. This is like almost star wars level for me where it's like i know if this thing comes on uh, two hours are done i'm out see i i gotta jump in and defend the 3d of this movie as well like i feel a lot what you're saying there i went and saw this in, in the theaters i saw this in 3d to me this movie must be watched in 3d because not only was it intended to be in 3d but honestly when i think of this movie being in 3d i think of the wizard of oz because this movie mm. does not start in 3D. It starts in 2D. Mm -hmm. And when you mm -hmm. get into the grid is when the 3D comes in. And that's like the Wizard of Oz starting in sepia tones and going to color when you get to the fantastical elements of the movie. And mm. I think that's absolutely amazing and a wonderful creative choice for the film. Uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, okay. I, I'm I'm right there with you both. I if I, you know, if 3D was a technology that was going to actually last, you know, I would have bought like maybe a 3D TV, but I got my projector, no, go 3D ahead. projector. <laughs> um, but I absolutely love this movie. I loved it in 3D. Uh, I saw it as well in um, the, I think it was actually an official IMAX because that was the only one we had in dog. Dallas at the time was, was an official IMAX screen and size and everything. Uh, but it was it was good. I mean, I just it, it, there are very few movies where you watch them in 3D and you think, okay, that was worth it. Um, I think Avatar, uh, even though the the film and I don't love it, the 3D aspect of it was amazing. Um, like you said, John, you know, creating a movie in in uh, the digital space gives you the opportunity, and it's why actually animated features uh, made with a 3D animation are usually really good in 3D. Mm. Uh, because they already have the 3D element. So, yeah, I, I heartily agree. So, um, you know, that was all for free, too, just kind of our love of the 3D of the film. Um, I do want to remind you real quick a couple of things before we really get into our conversation. Uh, you can find Trek FM and all the shows we do everywhere. Um, but one of the main places uh, you want to check us out is over on Apple Podcasts. Uh, hit us up with a star rating review for the 602 Club. Help the show grow. Um, subscribe so you get a show the moment that I publish it. 
And uh, like I said, though, you can find the show all, anywhere you get your podcasts, basically. Uh, you can also find us on Twitter at TrekFM, Facebook at Facebook.com slash TrekFM. We've got the Listeners Only Discussion Group, the Babel Conference on Facebook. You can type Babel into the search field there on Facebook, or you can go to the website at trek.fm and hit Discussion on any of the menu bars. And then while you're at the website, if you decide you wanted to write us an email, go to trek.fm slash contact, choose a show, choose the 602 Club, and that email comes to me and any hosts that week. So, um, yeah, check us out, out all over those places. Follow us, like us on all the social medias, um, and help us out in that way. But um, I wanted to ask you guys about this idea because this was really interesting to me coming back to this movie now in light of what we just got with Blade Runner 40, 2049. And this, you know, coming back to a cult classic is a tough thing, you know, and... In a lot of ways, I see this kind of as a precursor to the Blade Runner revival mm -hmm. because you go back to that cult classic to make a sequel. Um, and I wanted to ask you what your first memories were of Tron, the first one, and were you excited? I think we probably already blew this question, but hmm. were you excited about Legacy coming out, them going back, or did you think, oh, man, how are we going to do this? I remember uh, seeing Tron on video. My dad uh, rented it, and we watched it together. I was very young. And it definitely made an impression. And I remember my dad, really, like, his love for it was infectious because he was so much in awe of what it looked like. You know, he, he, mm -hmm. yeah. he had the reaction of, oh, my gosh, look at what they're doing. And that sort of creates that initial sense impression for you when you're a kid. It's like, oh, hey, dad loves it. I love it. Um, but as I revisited it over the years, I came to love it as, you know, for what it was sort of thing. I was like, you know, this is, this is a, a really innovative movie and it, you know, it is imperfect, but it's engaging and it's fun and it's accessible and it's uh, you know, and it's family friendly, which is also really nice. And it has a, a wonderful sense of whimsy with things like the bit. And uh, even when, you know, I mean, e even when uh, uh clue in, in the first one meets his uh, spoilers, untimely demise, uh, even that's a cute scene, you know, when he goes, ah, you know, and, and, and the, uh, the, he, he, he get his tank gets, uh, gets wrecked. But I thought that it was, uh, just a fun movie. And when I found out they were doing a sequel, I was really excited specifically because I, yeah, it hit that nostalgic center. It was like, oh wow. Tron with today's technology. That's going to be amazing. Yeah, I I kind of felt a little differently about the original Tron myself. I had I had this sense of nostalgia for this movie that I'd never seen when I when I finally did see it. I I'd, I'd seen a few shots of it on on the, like the Disney Hour or whatever it was, and I, the one scene that I remembered vividly was when they were drinking that that water out of their frisbees and whatnot. And I'm like, so I had this this very vivid memory of that scene. And I had bought the DVD as one of my first DVDs, like in 2001 or 2002, when I really started collecting DVDs. And I had told my friend when I was buying these movies, I'm like, you know, on DVD, I'm just going to buy movies that are like important movies. <laughs> and, you know, like, like, you know, really important films. And this is really important because it was the first like movie that had CGI in it. And I'm like, this is important. And my friend's like, yeah, that's never going to last. You're just going to buy a whole bunch of garbage movies. And he was right. <laughs> but I had bought this movie. I'm like, yeah, I'm going to watch this. And I watched the movie and I'm like, huh. Okay. That was a movie. 
And I, hmm. the, so the first time I watched it as a grown up, I'm like, this really didn't do it for me. And I watched it a couple of more times over the years and I kind of liked it. I'm like, yeah, this is okay. But for some reason, when they announced Tron Legacy was coming out, I'm like, wow, this looks really cool. I'm totally into this. And I have completely fallen in love with Tron Legacy. And I, I still don't really like Tron that much, you know? So mm-hmm. it's, it, I'm coming at it with this really interesting point of view where I, I think the sequel is a complete masterpiece that far overshadows the original for me. You know, I, I think that, again, that's interesting because I think a, that plays a lot into um, the conversation we just have been having, uh, you know, last year as 2049 came out. And that was a question a lot of people had. Is this better than the first one? The answer is yes. Um, and so, um, and, and I think it's it's a it. The crazy thing is, and and what makes it a great question is that it's a legitimate question. We can actually have that conversation, um, you know. And I think that's that's completely legitimate question here too. Does this exceed the first movie? And and I, oh, yeah. I mean, I'll say I think it does. Part of that is I think that one, um, you know, what they're trying to do when they made the original Tron it was very difficult for them. And there are parts of it that are very cheesy, obviously. But what they're trying to do is so amazing. I think that's the thing that really stuck out to me is that they were actually going for it. It, it reminded me a lot of how, you know, in the end, Lucas pushes forward uh, technology and film by making the people that worked for him do it because he wants it done, even if it's not quite perfect yet, but just so that we get on the, you know, it, basically he's saying, you know what, let's just get a double. We need a double here. Um, we don't have to have the grand slam. We just need to get on base at this point. And I, I think, you know, with Tron, it gets us on base with that type of technology for filmmaking. And it's awesome because of it. I, see, I would actually uh, go another step there and say that what is endearing about the original Tron is the same thing that's endearing about Labyrinth or Dark Crystal or any of an assortment of other films from the 1980s, Explorers, um, or or you know or films like that, where I will completely concede again, you know, imperfect flaws, not a great you know not a great masterpiece or anything like that, but there's such an unbridled unrestrained imagination about it that you can't help but appreciate it and that that's what makes me dig tron the original tron you know despite any of its flaws or anything like that is the same reason i can rewatch labyrinth with the kids and sit there and i'm like "Ah, you know it's not a really well constructed movie but they had a guy who could summon rocks and Muppets moving around with people and, you know, little people with Muppet heads. And so, and it's like, it's somebody who just said, you know what? Yeah, let's do this. Let's make it happen. But if you're talking about actual quality of the overall film, I think Tron Legacy is, I mean, it's such a stunning achievement. And I think that the difference is just the fact that I think that, um, it is that sense of the original breaks down that wall in terms of what they're going to try to do. And then by the time they come back to it, filmmakers are, or at least this filmmaker is more mature about the technology that's available and how to use it, how to leverage it best. Yeah. And so he, if anything, you could argue that those first lessons that where you cut your teeth for the first time on Tron 
all of that, you know, all of film history leading up to when they're going to release the sequel comes into play, you know, so it, it knocks down that wall. Everything gets built up. It's sort of like Jurassic Park leading the way for CG creature effects and stuff like that. I wanted to ask you guys um, this question because the thing I find interesting is that Tron Legacy ended up kind of falling into the same trap in the sense of, of where the box office went with it. That 2049 did. It's a cult classic that people love, but it didn't have enough of a draw for a new audience. Um, and I'm sure, you know, and I, I think I've seen this with Legacy where it's become more and more its own kind of cult classic now. And I think that will happen with 2049. But to actually go back and to, to make a, a film in it, uh, that series again may not be something that is going to be readily accepted r- right at that time. Yeah, I, um, I like. Are you talking about um, that that it, this was like a little ahead of the curve in terms of what people were ready to accept for an audience, or are you talking about like yeah. the springboard well, for I, like relaunching I, a franchise? I think, you know. I, they they did want this to be a franchise, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, they wanted this to be some. They had created a cartoon, you know, for it as well in the universe with with the Tron Legacy universe, and and I think they wanted to make more films in this. Um, and I think, you know, if you asked Denove, I think I'm sure he would have thought of ideas for you know Blade Runner, you know. 3062 or something you know um yeah we could have had another one there but it just it seems like these movies like the originals and then their sequel they just kind of end up being something that people don't appreciate necessarily when they're out in the theater and it it just takes time for people to catch up to what these visionary filmmakers are doing. Well, twenty forty nine was supposed to launch a a cinematic universe because everybody wants to launch one now, and um, so it, it was supposed to do that. But I think that Tron Legacy, even though I like, I hate the fact that when you bandy about talking about numbers, where you're talking about hundreds of millions of dollars. And you're saying, but it was a box office failure. It's like, that is so much money. That's such an immense amount of money. And I understand it, you know, it goes to shareholders, but then, it, you know, they they fund and leverage and all of that type of stuff. But where I think Tron Legacy has a hopeful edge to it at this point, or at least we have the hope of getting another Tron film, is the fact that uh, Shanghai Disney um, has the light cycle ride. And... There are plans to bring the light cycle ride to Disney World. If Disney is making a ride, their movies are created to sell tickets to the parks. So if they're going to have a Tron ride, I think it's pretty much a lock that it'll probably be a soft reboot again like Legacy is. But we'll, I think we'll definitely get another Tron movie uh, not too far in the future. I think that's interesting that they would do it at this point because I had heard that they had wanted to do that third one right away. And that's why they went ahead with the TV show was because the, you know, the, the movie didn't do what they wanted it to do, which is unfortunate. But I mean, like even the TV show only lasted one season and I watched the TV show and I thought it was fantastic. And I'm like, why didn't this take off? Like, 
You know, like with all the the shows that are out there that are not good, like this is a really good show. You know, it's mm. interesting. I just wanted to talk. You know, it, we were batting numbers around. So, the budget here was one hundred and seventy million dollars uh, back in two thousand ten, and worldwide, this film made four hundred million dollars. Like that's that's awesome. That's a that's a good return, especially in two thousand ten. You know, yeah. it only makes makes a hundred and six. Uh, 172 million here in the states, but then its domestic total is over uh, 228 million. So, I mean, it's you know, uh, it seems like that. Um, I don't know. Um, it is interesting to me that 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 these films just can't like this. The these films that I really love, like 2049 and Tron Legacy, they just can't find that audience. That I guess the studio wants to to have. Well, um, you know, for, and, and the four hundred million, yeah, is a lot. But I, I honestly think that if there's a, a film that we should saddle, um, unfairly setting expectations uh, for for comic book or or you know franchise movies or anything like that, it's The Dark Knight, right? The Dark Knight was so, was that was the billion dollar baby. That was the one that blew everybody's mind of. We could make this kind of money with these movies? Are you kidding me? And so anything else around that time or in its wake, right? If you don't get up into the, you know, the eight, nine hundred million range, it's like, oh, well, you know, it didn't perform the way that it could have. It's like, it's, I think, I think it really has to do, I think if, if, um, that mark hadn't been so close to being achieved, at least, because what didn't, okay. Because uh, I think Dark Knight did cross a billion with like a there they had a, a re-release that pushed it over the edge or something like that. I knew it fell like just short, but it was like right around in that range or something. But um, you know, I I, I think I mean it's the the same thing happens with Superman uh, Returns. Good movie, enjoyable. People like me love it. We're like, wow, hey, Superman's back. But it didn't make an ungodly amount of money, and so they're like, oh, it's a failure. We need to reboot everything. And it's like, oh. Okay. All right. You know. Yeah, I'm not. Sh I didn't like. I didn't like Superman Returns. Like, I'm not a huge Superman fan, like you guys are. But my wife and I did go to see it, and but when we left, we're like, "Yeah, that's meh." But I mean, you know, I'm not a huge Batman fan, but like Dark Knight completely captivated me, and that's a movie that I went and saw three times on opening weekend, not even being a huge Batman fan. You know, like I fell in love with that movie as well. So I, I, I think that there's a definite quality difference between those movies that you're comparing but you know yeah but but i mean the thing is i i think it's more like the box office return right it is really what i'm what i'm focused on is like it i think there's this obscene expectation with the type of money that a movie is supposedly going to generate with the box office and it's 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 almost like these things have to be um you know money printing machines for people to regard them as having been you know, popular or accepted. And it's like, it's just, you know, I, I think that um, it, it's purely that, you know, just speak to the numbers that, that Matt cited. I think legacy did fine at the box office. It's just people's perception is that it was a failure, which I think is just completely unfair. Yeah. Well, and, and I think the other thing that, that, that gives people that perception is in perception of the movie is kind of where you see it on um, Rotten Tomatoes. And, uh, the the film on Rotten Tomatoes I think holds, um, it's uh, gosh fifty one percent. 
That's that's the Rotten Tomato score. For and Tron? Then, yeah, for Tron, for Tron Legacy. Legacy. Uh, and yeah. then uh, the audience score is 63. So it's it's just, I, I don't know what it was, but this seems to be a movie that didn't connect with a lot of people then. And it surprises me because I, I watching this movie, I feel like it's so well done. And, and part of that, I think, was, to me, the way they melded the old and new. Um, and, and, and that was taking what happened in the old story and just bringing it forward but they also bring it forward you know technology wise and in every way so you know the effects and everything else and and one of the biggest technology aspects of the film was turning jeff bridges into clue again looking like young jeff bridges and both roles that he has in the film of portraying these characters i thought he was just bloody brilliant in Mm -hmm. like he does such a good job of playing the younger version of himself, the one that um, doesn't know any better, doesn't know what he doesn't know, and is caught in his own hubris. And the older Jeff Bridges, who is a little bit like the dude in cyberspace. Yeah. Um, you know, he's yeah. he's he's cool, man. Messing he's with hip, zen, he's man. with it. Yeah, he's totally zen. Um, but 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 the characterization of him and like how much he cares about the world he's created, his son, all of these things, and trying to make sure that he's he's keeping uh, both worlds safe as much as possible is is really cool. And I just I think um, I don't think he gets enough credit for what he does in this movie, having to play two of these different roles, and one specifically where he's having to play a younger version of himself. That's that's not an easy task, I don't think. Well, I I mean with with the effect as they did it back then i know that it it wasn't necessarily him um you know interacting um uh, with with his son like it, it, there there was a lot of um you know like guy with a blue sock on his head sort of stuff going on yeah, yeah. but yeah like you still had to have i mean this is such an incredible beachhead in terms of what they do with what we've come to expect now with like the beginning of Guardians of the Galaxy or resurrecting Peter Cushing. Now we're just like, yeah, this is what, you know, they can do that. Sure. Like this was mind blowing back then. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the effect isn't perfect, but who cares? You know, the, I'm so sick of um, people wanting the effect to be perfect, uh, you know, the first time out and everything like that. It's like, you know somebody somebody has the it's just like the original tron somebody has the guts to try it somebody says you know what let's do you know the original star wars when it came out in 77 you could see the mat lines around the the spaceships you you realize that right right? like it wasn't perfect (laughs) right exactly somebody somebody has the uh the you know the stones to do it and that what for me that was the most important thing that scene where he you know he's in you know, and they don't show his face, they don't show his face in the opening scene, and then all of a sudden it's him, you know, turning and looking over his shoulder. I was like, wow, wow, that, wow, that's pretty amazing. You know, yeah, I like remember it seeing that me. in theaters when that happened. I'm like, holy smokes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. 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 It, it, and, and it's, um, I think it's a, it's such a, a wonderful, wonderful way of emphasizing, you know, Kevin Flynn embodies the whole idea of being careful about technology, of 
what you know what can go wrong and that the flaw is within us it's the part of us that decides what to do with it that's gonna make it good or bad yeah i i really like that part of the movie and um i think it's funny that this movie is a better last jedi than the last jedi i concur (laughs) i i and i and i still i still want joseph kaczynski to do a star wars movie i don't know why they haven't tapped him for one, like it, it literally blows my mind. Like when they're talking directors, his name is always at the top of my list because I look at Tron Legacy and I'm like, the guy gets it, man. Let him have a shot. I don't know who he well, met. And, he, and, and he what's so off. great about the story, too, is 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 the again, it's the characterization of Kevin Flynn, of this guy who sees himself as the greatest danger to the world that he's created and the world he's now having to protect because he knows what Clue wants. He wants to get out of this world and conquer our world. Right. right. And so the only recourse he does have at this moment is to do nothing. And it makes sense for him to do nothing until we have this moment where his son enters this world. And I'm, I'm still not totally clear on who sent the page. Um, maybe it was... Um, supposed to be Cora. No, uh, um, Clue sent it. It was a. It was. Oh, Clue it was sent it. Okay, I. It, right. Yeah. Um, but I, I love that though. That just that one thing like changes enough of the game for him to be able to to find a way to act and do what he is meant to do, which is to to still protect the world that he created and the the world that he loves through his son and to give it a new gift in Cora and like this whole thing and and then his ultimate sacrifice you know spoiler alert uh, at the end it it means so much but i just felt like this movie really finds a way to make that storyline work and to make sense and to feel like part of this character and the other part i love about it is that he doesn't feel like a different character he still has very much of that mentality of that dude from the 80s mm-hmm. film right mm-hmm. um but at the same time, he he does have a a great bit of wisdom, and uh, and he's had a lot of time to think, and that shows too. So he melds those two really well. Do you guys like? I don't know if you're also getting it, but do you guys also get like quite biblical vibes off of this story as well, where like you know Flynn is like God who's created this world, and Clue is like Satan you know, like the perfect angel who's fallen, you know, and is now leading this underworld of sin or whatnot with like these clubs and this fighting arena and stuff like this, or am I kind of looking too much into it? No, I definitely, I definitely think that there is a, uh, a subtext that is, that is, that can be picked up from that. Um, like if you want to go like, you know, deep dive with, you know, sort of the characterization of the, the good and the evil, forces you know the the god and the devil thing and you know the debate about are they actually on an equal playing field and and stuff like that but what what i i definitely see about it is what you're saying you have this fallen angel but i I think that the the x factor the thing that's really fascinating to me about it is just like the original tron is the focus tron is you know what it's about tron is is this legendary figure but tron is never actually the main character mm-hmm. i think that is always so fascinating and so like if you go with this um 
this biblical thing, like with what happens with Tron, it's almost as if, you know, if you're going to say Clue is the devil, it's almost as if, you know, like the angel Gabriel falls and that's what like shifts the 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 tide or or what have you. But like, I mean, to, to get over to, um, you know, Kevin Flynn and the stalemate that he has going on, what I love is that there's a Shakespearean element to it, too, because the whole thing that keeps Hamlet from acting is, you know, he knows that as soon as he springs into action, he's going to die. Like, that's just the way the philosophy worked back in Renaissance times. Once I kill, I'm going to be killed. You have Wheel of Fortune and everything like that. And so I think that there, there's such a beautiful, subtle undercurrent of Kevin Flynn being aware that if things do shift out of balance, he's pretty much probably going to be dooming himself. So he, you know, he damned if he does, damned if he doesn't sort of thing. And I think that's so... Yeah, I, I think that's fascinating. You mentioned that there, and I know that it hasn't been that long since I've seen this movie. It's only been like maybe three years since I've seen this. Two years, three years, something like that. And I forget how well buried that plot point is that Rinsler is Tron. Mm-hmm. And watching it again this time, I'm like, I I was like, my jaw dropped when they're like, it's Tron. Because I forgot that plot point because it's so well buried in the movie. And, and I get goosebumps as as you say it, and I I just think again, you know, every time I think of the scene where where uh, Rinsler is flipping over their ship, and you have uh, Kevin Flynn look up and go, I'll uh, the way I remember the line is no, but the the way I remember the line is he's like uh, like what happened to you or you know what happened or something like that, and that's the moment where Tron is like like you can see even without a face, it's so well directed. You can see just a subtle body language shift of, wait a minute, like it's so cool. Yeah, I, I like uh, what you're you're talking about there, um, Brandon, and and just from my perspective, I think, um, you know, in this story, Flynn is kind of the father god character. Clue ends up being like the um, fallen angel Lucifer, and Tron ends up being like Adam who ends up following Satan um, and then is redeemed in the end uh, because he he sees his creator. Uh, so it kind of has that, that art to it. I, I definitely see that there's a lot of, you know, those kind of parallels happening in the film. And I think it, it's one of the things that makes it really fun because you can kind of start to, to dig into this uh, idea and all. But yeah, I, I just Jeff Bridges is so good in this movie and he feels so, it feels so effortless from him mm-hmm. in a lot of ways. Like everything he's doing in the movie is so great. But I mean, to me, one of his hallmark scenes is is when he has the dinner with his son and you can see the weight of being gone for that long and missing everything on his son's life is taking its toll every moment dinner lasts. Mm-hmm. Like it just gets worse and worse and worse for him, and he he just continues to really not know what to say in that moment because it's catching up with him just how much he's missed, and it's a really well acted scene and it's very understated, uh, it's not overplayed, but you get that sense that this man misses the fact that um, this is the son that he's really not ever going to truly get to know because, like you said, John, he has a feeling that. The board has shifted, and there's a good chance 
to save everything, it's going to take him right. saving everything. And it's going to cost him yeah. everything. Um, and that weight, I feel like, just hits him. And then, you know, I love that we get the the moment with, um, you know, Jeff Bridges there on the, the, the light train where he gets to have that conversation with his son and they kind of begin to open up and it becomes more comfortable and more like just kind of fun and enjoyable together. And again, I think that's another scene where it's like it, he's able to just kind of like put aside his baggage, man, and try and enjoy this moment with his son because it may be the last moments that he ever really gets. And I think that's great. Yeah. I, I, uh, I, I do love that scene. Uh, especially because, you know, he describes Wi-Fi to him. And he's like, oh, I thought of that. You know, like, it's just that 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 thing where he's like, hey, the world went the way I thought it might. Um, and it, it, it's, uh, you know, and the thing is, I hate to go back to it, but again, you know, with, with the biblical stuff, I love the idea that's set up there where you have this creator who's setting up everything very meticulously. There's a lot of order to it. And then... Quora comes from this new life form that spontaneously comes out of it. So chaos still has a place in this perfect order and it's not it's not terrible. Chaos is beautiful because it produces something randomly uh amazing. But there's still order to the world. It's just that the the structure allowed the chaos to take shape that was beneficial. And I think that's such a See that's what I wanted you know, to ask you guys because to me like um there was this idea of you know trying to create this perfect system like this perfection and it seemed to me that humanity trying to create that or pass that on to clue and ask him to do it um it goes wrong because as Flynn kind of says, it's unknowable to us. We don't understand perfection because we are imperfect. But what kind of fascinated me was that perfection happens spontaneously out of nothing with the isomorphs. And it kind of, again, it kind of talked this idea of these the biblical themes of like creating out of nothing the world. The isomorphs are the perfection, the the, the almost like lost Eden that, there's no way Flynn or a clue could have created. They just come into being. And so it's, it's something beyond their control creates, you know, does that make sense? Like it was interesting to me to kind of see this idea, like humanity is not really good at trying to create perfection because it seems to always go one way or the other, like fascist or, you know, something worse. Um, and what you get is this, beautiful creation of perfection that had nothing to do with us but it it's perfect like it's beyond anything we could ever comprehend as flint talks about yeah so so yeah I, I think i get what you're saying that like no matter how much we try to control the world the world can still create something spontaneously more beautiful and perfect than we could ever yeah. imagine yeah I, I mean if anything even though you're talking about you know inside a computer of you know a little fake computer world thing there's still like a natural order that is more powerful than the human being who's trying to control and structure it. Yeah, that I, I do. Yeah, I, I see that. I like, I like, I like where you're going with that. I do like that a lot. Yeah, yeah. See, there there are parts in this that like I don't quite understand, like why certain things happen in this movie and what they're trying to go 
go towards with certain things like the isomorphs themselves like okay so the the grid creates these things basically out of nothing and i'm like okay well what do they signify then because yeah so you've got these beings that are within this artificial world that have been created out of nothing but i mean like in a nutshell this is all boils down to these are just programs as it is right so i don't know i guess what do they what do they signify beyond that but see, I think that's the beauty of the film is that we can sit here and have that debate. Like Matt and I can sit here and talk when we can find in the isomorphs this demonstration about natural order and, you know, humanity's inability to control it. Or you could take the tactic of these programs spring up because that maybe it signifies that, uh, you know, eventually when we truly do reach a stage of AI, it's going to do things that we can't anticipate that, it, you know. But if anything, I think that the most beautiful thing about it, like if you want to pull that thread, is one of the big you know, headline grabbers now is people saying like, oh my gosh, AI, it's here, Skynet's going to kill us all. And we tend to get very, very uh, negative about stuff like that. We're like, oh geez, this is, you know, every time in science fiction it seems we create like the big master computer, it's like, you guys suck and like comes after us, right? But in Tron Legacy, it's Kevin Flynn's cre direct creation uh, clue that goes wrong, but the computer creates something, you know, for put whatever adjective you want, a good, noble, pure, whatever. And so I think you could even say that that's sort of a thing where it's like once computers get to a certain level, we can't anticipate that they're going to go wrong every time or that it's going to be a bad thing that the robot dog, you know, open. I mean, I, you know. <laughs> I don't know. Robots maybe are a different thing. Maybe we should just keep everything in a computer or something because robot dogs <laughs> well, that can open it, doors terrify me. So, you know, but whatever. So I like this idea, um, though, and, and what it signified to me, Brandon, so all, all the things that exist in the grid are are programs that man has made, right? They're, they're, they're programs that we've created, you know, um, and so, yeah, I guess the Fandango app is running around down there in the grid, hmm. uh, you know, along with all the other apps that we've created. But what it seemed to signify to me is that, again, this is something that the system, something so beyond anything we could comprehend created perfection. Like, it, it's not a human creation. This has nothing to do with humanity whatsoever. Like, it just came into being out of nothing. And it is something that is perfect it has a understanding and a and a code to it that could if given the opportunity as as Flynn says this could change everything we could wipe out disease and all of these things because of what these things are and it almost seems like to me like I guess if we're kind of talking in these biblical terms, it's like almost a second creation, like a second Garden of Eden. They were a second, you know, um, chance at, at perfection um, that we had nothing to do with. And then, of course, you know, uh, a clue destroys them because they aren't lockstep. Um, and yet, you know, what Clue can't understand is perfection doesn't mean lockstep. It mean there's beauty in uniqueness, and that is also perfection. And and so it's like, but you can't teach that to the binary, the ones and zeros. Um, 
And 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 it seemed like to me, in a lot of ways, the isomorphs were something that could transcend the binary of that being one thing or another to being way more than that. And that's what was revolutionizing this digital space. And I think that's, I mean, again, the fact we can have this conversation, it's totally outlandish and crazy, but it's also super cool. And, 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 and the thing is, th- this is, this is a film where we're simply talking about one aspect of it. And it's, right. it's spurring this type of like deep philosophical conversation, not even about whether we agree with this philosophy or whether it actually exists, but just like trying to trying to break it down. And if I'm not mistaken, this is even Kaczynski's first film, right? Is it so, his first film? I think I'm it's his sure. first film. Uh, and like that or, or even if it's just his second. I mean, honestly, a film like this, it would be very hard for me if I created a film like this, not to just like drop the mic and be like, I ain't getting better guys i'm out i'm done but the guy keeps going so you know thank you um but that i think is really the point of the isomorphs is that it creates these conversations like i i think that one of the things that will always remain with me that will always make me love tron legacy so much and i love pretty much any work especially in the modern era that goes back to the idea of simply throwing the questions out there and being well-structured enough that when I revisit it to try to glean, is my, is my supposition right about what it's trying to say here? Is my theory correct? Is there something I can discuss? I mean, it's like when, you know, it's like when, uh, when a Star Wars conversation comes up. Like, that's the beauty of it. It's like, I, you know, I can go back. Just last night, I sat down and I watched uh, part of Attack of the Clones. And I'm sitting there. And like new questions come up while I'm watching it. And with Tron Legacy, I'll go back, I'll watch this isomorphs thing, I'll remember this conversation, and I'll start asking more questions about it. And I think that's really, that's why this film elevates to artwork as opposed to just, you know, gristmill formula franchise movie. Right. You know? With, with the isomorphs, like, I, there's one question, I want to get it out there because I don't want to forget it, but I, I don't quite understand the how it can eliminate disease. But the other thing that I wanted wanted to mention before we get off of the topic is while I was asking what do they signify, I will tell you what I was thinking of when I was watching the movie this time and that as a Christian, one of the things that I struggle with is evolution because to me, evolution makes sense, right? And so it's something that I consistently struggle with. And I've had this conversation with people in my church before where it's like, okay, I look at... I look at babies that are born with birth defects. And to me, when I see that, I see an error in evolution. Because a baby's supposed to be made in a certain way. You're supposed to be, you know, people are generally created with a head and two arms and two legs, and, and that's what they look like. So if you have a baby that's born with, say, no legs or no arms or something like that, then something went wrong in the gestation of that baby. And to me, that makes sense that that's something that broke down in evolution. And so to me, that's evidence of evolution. And so what I, what I, what I see as a parallel in this movie is that we've got the biblical story with Flynn as God, yet here's something that has evolved within the grid is these isomorphs. They've evolved out of the grid. Right. You know, am I right. making sense? Does that make sense? Yeah, no, that, I, I mean, that's, that, that's, that's, what I, I think what, you know, what we're, we're bandying about here is that like, you know, you have this, the isomorphs could only come into existence in this structured 
universe that Flynn creates, that like that's the only he basically creates the conditions for them to exist without specifically creating them right. one by one. And right. so I, you know, I, I mean, I, you know, I think it goes back to, and, and, you know, this is, this is, I think another theme in the film and it's another theme in, you know, one of my favorite films of all time, Revenge of the Sith and everything. The idea of control is I think that there's um, something that needs to be challenged about just, you know, modern, societies um I, I don't know if you want to parse it down to like western societies or whatever but you know whatever like there's this sense that the world is a controllable thing that everybody behaves this way and everybody does like i i see it sometimes when parents struggle with you know oh my kid is hyperactive or my kid is you know off the rails and I, i'm not saying that there aren't conditions that exist obviously there are but as a general rule i see a lot of people struggling with the idea that life in and of itself is chaotic. And, you know, for my personal philosophies, that's a beautiful thing. You know, like chaos is, is awesome. Like, because it does produce the random effects. And if you put too tight a lid on things, then they stagnate. You need to have the room for the crazy experimentation or the thing to go off the rails even because you're, you're looking at something where the only way you're going to get, you know, a, a great result is you just got to, you know, it, it's almost like um, painting. You know, you, you might make like two or three terrible paintings, but then you're going to get your masterpiece, right? Or a film. Joseph Kaczynski might make 10 terrible movies, but he made this one, right? And and what's different about the circumstances with each and, and all of that stuff. And I, I guess maybe I've, I've gone off the rails or something like that. But with the isomorphs in specific, I think that the idea of them being able to cure disease is Flynn thinking if we can get Quora out to the world and she becomes, you know, she has the Pinocchio experience of becoming the real girl, then what's inside her, since it's unique and, um, and spontaneous, could provide some sort of, um, I don't know, some, some sort of... Uh, fixative or cure or something like that for what is broken in society outside of Flynn's little world or something. That, that's how I take it. I think the thing that's uh, to me uh, about Cora was it's, it's her, it is this perfection that is spontaneous in her. Um, and that it's almost seems like to me, uh, the effect I got from the, the conversation that Flynn and his son Sam have was that, um, she is almost immune to sickness and disease. There's something about them that that just innate perfection in them. Uh, and so, yeah, to get her outside of the system and into our world could could change everything by you know using her then you know DNA to be able to help solve um, many of our problems in that that way so so do you think that like when her arm was cut off and he takes that faulty code out and it regrows do you think that's because of his coding and what he fixed or do you think that it regrows because she's an isomorph both um i got the feeling like that uh the the faulty code or whatever happened because of somebody you know chopping her arm off yeah. and it was like she had been infected with faulty code, and then he's just able to, to, you know, do the 
the quick fix and it grows her arm back. Part of that may be because she's an isomorph. I don't know. Uh, I think in that world for, I, I, I think it's column A and column B because I, I think that he, he's the one that can tinker with it. Um, but uh, because the only thing that, um, you know, Clue or his minions can do is corrupt or destroy. And so she winds up getting corrupted. But Flynn is the one that has the power to, you know, to, to make it so that the corruption goes away. I mean, you know, if you want to keep going down the biblical thing, read into that what you will. Because he's he seems surprised when the arm is growing back. He's always like, oh, look at that or something like that. He says, I don't remember exactly what he says, but. So I've I've wondered, is it because of the removal of the code or just because she's an isomorph that she can regrow her arm? So Yeah, I, I think John might be on something. It might be both. Um, I wanted to ask you guys, wow, that was an amazing conversation, by the way. And <laughs> just as everybody, I think, can hear, there are so many things we could still talk about in that area, which is, again, I think, John, you made the point, this is what makes this movie so great, is we can have these super deep uh, emotionally driven, fantastically philosophical conversations about human existence from a movie about being inside a computer program. That was a terrible with, flop at the cinemas. With, yeah, exactly. <laughs> but but not just not just not just a movie like that, but a movie where they also have incredible fight scenes with these cool spinny discs and light cycles and stuff like that. I mean, this yes. this film's got everything, I mean, man. It's it's amazing. Um, I wanted to ask you because we spend the most time in the movie with Sam. Um, and I thought I wanted to ask you what you thought of Garrett um, playing him and just his characterization. And because this is one of the things that I saw that the movie does kind of get ding dong is people don't really enjoy his acting. Really? So I wanted uh, to ask you what you guys thought. I don't understand people. Yeah, I'm with Brandon. I, I don't get it. I, I don't get it. I, what, what, what I mean, what are, I don't know what people expect half the time. I seriously, I it's just it's so. I, I think sometimes when people complain about somebody's acting uh not not every time obviously but i think sometimes when people complain about somebody's acting it's because they don't agree with character choices or something and they don't know a way to um voice it now uh, yeah i'm not saying that to be dismissive or anything but it, you know it's almost like when you know you sit down and you vet a design or something like that and somebody says i don't like it well i mean that means a ton of things doesn't it but if you can say, oh, well, this choice didn't work or I didn't care for it. Like I, I could see saying, well, I, I would have connected with the movie more if Sam had been more emotive or if Sam had been, um, you know, this or that. I don't find those deficiencies is the issue. And I think that creates a whole difficult layer to that conversation because when you don't agree about whether somebody is a, you know, has quote unquote bad acting, like it just becomes fraught. It all, you know, like it, I, in my experiences, it always degenerates into an unpleasant conversation when somebody's like, that actor sucks. And it's like, I don't, I don't, I don't see that. What, what are you talking about? Like, it, but it's just, it's a bridge you can't cross. Mm -hmm. I, I think he's fine. And I mean, my interpretation of his acting, like he's not the most emotive actor in the role. But what I place upon his character with this is, you know, something that I, I mentioned to Matt that I want to talk about is the is the relationship that he has with his father. 
you know, and he's got this wonderful relationship with his dad, even though his mother's dead. That's something you don't normally see in a movie. You usually see this headbutting friction with the son hating the dad or the kids hating the dad. And he had this wonderful relationship, and then his dad just disappeared. And so he's heartbroken in his life. Mm -hmm. You know, he had this close bond with his dad that just vanished. And so that's how I interpret his his acting choices in this is this heartbroken attitude that he's got in his heart because the person that he loved the most just disappeared on him and he's like lost and confused. So that's how I interpret his acting in this movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I I agree with you, Brandon. To me, what this is is a a choice to play the character that is trying to numb the pain that he's had mm-hmm. his whole life. And and he's not super emotive, and that's a choice he's making to be that way. And the places where you kind of see him more emotive are those those places where he feels alive for a moment, where he's doing something that's right for humanity by not screwing over humanity by just putting a 12 on the box. By jumping you off know? a building. Like, he's pretty yeah, emotive when know? that happens, you know? Yeah, exactly. So, um, and then you see him come more and more alive throughout the film as he, you know, gets the chance to talk to his father and um, meets Cora. They start this kind of relationship and he finds a purpose, which is to help his father escape um, and then he also finds the purpose in being able to let go at the very end, you know, of of protecting the world so that Clue and um, his minions don't escape. Mm. Uh, and I think that's the thing that I like about this movie is you see him grow as a character to the very end where he is riding with Korra on the bike and he has a smile on his face. Like he, like the, 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 the world has gotten a little he a little bit brighter. He might have lost his father, but his father died heroically. He got a chance to know him, the best part of him, and now he is is tasked with going off and finding a way to change the world with Cora. And he's got a wonderful platform to do it because you know he owns this amazing company. You know he's the whole largest stockholder, um, and so. I think that's the thing that I really liked about the characterization. And I, I thought it was good. I really, I like um, Garrett Hegland and I thought he did a really good job in the movie and the way he played off of other people was great too. Um, especially Olivia Wilde as Cora, I thought was fantastic how she's kind of, she's really effervescent. Mm-hmm. Um, you can tell that she's very young, even though she looks older. Um, she's kind of a little bit naive in some places, and and but she plays it all so well. I thought that that was really fun. The way that she laughs at the wrong time um, yeah. at things was great. You know, uh, I dropped I, it. I, I, ah. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so I for the the cast here, especially these main three, I think they work together so well. Um, and uh, it is kind of frustrating that we haven't gotten a sequel to this movie because to see her and um, Garrett back and finding a way maybe even to have Jeff Bridges return because they found a way to resurrect a new clue, you know, like you could do that, right? Because it's sci-fi. Um, well, I mean, give Bruce Boxleitner a chance to shine. 
and and also bring back Killian Murphy because you cast him because you wanted to do that, and he's the son of the bad guy from the first one. It's so frustrating that they didn't make the third one. I'm so frustrated about that. It really annoys me. Ah, gosh, it annoys me. Obviously. Obviously. I, I wanted to point out one thing here at the end that you mentioned there quickly. Speaking of Blade Runner, do, do you not get a Blade Runner theatrical cut ending when they're like riding the motorcycle at the end through the forest? I I do have that emotive moment. Uh, I think it fits better here. Yes. Uh, hands down. But yeah, I, I like you drawing that comparison. That is a good way to put it. Whereas like dark, 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 sunny trees. What? Wait, what happened? Yeah. <laughs> um, I, I just want to mention uh, we do get um, Spock in this film. Sarek. You know, yeah, or Sarek. You know, I'm, I, I don't watch Discovery. <laughs> uh, so, uh, but I just love that he was a really popular actor um, and he's just kind of continued to be in things, James Frain. Um, and he's just so swarmy is this Jarvis character. Like, I just kind of love him yeah and then of course i i love um how he dies yeah <laughs> like he's just said one thing too many yeah. <laughs> uh-huh yeah uh I, yes he i you know what i i will say that um james frayne uh i think is what helps sell clue uh to begin with because if you don't have the right real actor to help sell that digital face i don't think that plays as well i really don't and so I think that he is, um, he should be regarded as something of an unsung hero uh, in this film. Yeah, I like him in this just fine. It, it, I still can't believe it's him because, you know, just the last I've seen him is, is as Sarek, right, for the last couple of roles. I know that he was in 24. I don't really remember him in 24 because it's been so long since I've seen the season that he was in. But those are the three things that I really know him from myself. I did want to ask you, because I want to talk quickly about this theme before we hit some other things and then we can wrap up. Um, But the very beginning of the movie obviously kind of hits very heavy, this idea of, you know, um, the Dillingers of the world and the Flynns of the world Mm -hmm. and what they've done for the world and how they deal with the world. And one takes advantage of it and the other is trying to give back to it. And I thought that that was really interesting because it kind of touched on that idea for me that I, I've seen in a lot of movies, you know, like how, what, um, uh, in Tomorrowland, what wolf are you going to feed? What are you going to do with the time you've been given? And I thought it was really interesting to see, you know, as we we're talking about Sam, how he's emulating his dad in the sense that he's keeping that his company from completely ripping people off. 100% of the time and he's the only one worth doing willing to do that because everybody else is willing to use this is kind of like the worst mogul like uh, you know um the worst of 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 Silicon Valley and you know his his father was the best and so I thought that was a really interesting like you know you can still be in business but also not use it to to just rip people off at the same time, and that balance that they're trying to make in this movie, I thought was was nice. I, I really liked this idea um, because you know 
gosh, I feel like we could use more Kevin Flynn's running companies in the world. <laughs> well, I, you know, I, I think um, even in the context of this especially is, yeah, if you go back to the early days of like personal computing and stuff like that, there, there's, there's this romanticism about how Jobs and Wozniak, you know, got in there and, you know, and, and Gates and everybody ripping each other off, but like doing it because they were passionate and they wanted to, you know, push technology forward and stuff like that. But eventually you become the Apple juggernaut or you become Google or you become what have you. And even if your mission statement was do no evil, you know, that's, you know, it's hard not to be cynical and be like, yeah, whatever. Sure, guys. Um, so I think that, you know, you you could take that not just about, I mean, obviously about companies in general, but I think it, it works particularly well given the age between Tron and Tron Legacy, seeing the role of, I, I mean, if anything, the original Tron reflects that enthusiasm and romantic verve of the dawn of the, the personal computing age. And then Tron Legacy is set in this world of what we did with it and where it went. And, you know, like that in and of itself, I think, could spur like a whole, you know, huge conversation about are things as bad as we think they are? Are things better? Are, you know, are we fooling ourselves about the nature of the companies that, you know, provide our tech and stuff like that? There's three things in this movie that bother me. And like th th one of them is that scene at the beginning with the. Uh, the opening scene and those computer people that are in there and they hit it a little bit too hard, that nail right on the head where, you know, Bruce Boxleitner is really, really good and everybody else is really slimy. It's just, I don't know, for me, the way that that scene is portrayed, it's like, Oh, look, we put a 12 on the box and that's how we made it better. And Bruce Boxleitner is like, well, how did you make this better for people? Oh, we put the 12 on the box. And I, I don't know, for me, they just hit that a little bit too head and too much right on the head for me. But but see, the thing is, you have the reflection of the business people there. Yeah, it's the guy that says, you know, oh, well, you put a 12 on the box. But then you have Killian Murphy, who's actually defending the OS and saying, no, this is actually good. And, you know, it's the most secure. It's the most stable. And he, he's defending it. So I think that in and of itself is a reflection of the, the changing beast that your board is no longer made up of people who actually know and can work with the technology anymore. You yeah. have the guy who helped found it, who built the first ones in his garage, and you have the guy who, you know, learned at his knee or at the knees of people like him, and then you have 10 or 20 other people, and all they care about is profit share. They don't, yeah. they don't know they don't know anything. They don't know, you know, uh, uh, you know, jQuery from from View, from uh, Nuxt, from from uh, from Bootstrap or anything like that. You know, like all they know. You just is, said a lot of words. I don't know what you're saying. No, you know, but like they they, you know, they, they they wouldn't be able to code a line to save their lives. But they're on these boards, and so you know, I like I get what you're saying about how it's too on the. You know, he hits the nail on the head, but I think it's because that sets up the specific. Um, you know yep. exactly you know, where the, these people are with that stroke of the hammer. Right. You know exactly where everybody is. Right. Right. right? So it works. Which I think you also have to do because, you know, you've got a three-minute scene, and that's really all you're going to get yeah. from those. And, and so you kind, of, you kind of have to make sure you make the point and then move on. But what, what's interesting is that that's a mirror for the, the, what we see kind of in the, uh, in the grid. You know, 
uh, the difference between Kevin and Clue and, and the choices they're making and everything. So I, I think it really does work. Um, I think the thing that I was really amazed by is how the production design of this movie still completely holds up yeah. seven years later. Um, the effects are incredible. Um, I was reading, too, that um, the director wanted them to build as much as possible. So, you know, you have, like, you know, Kevin's hideout house, you know, that amazing ultra-modern place is, is you know, uh, a set that they build as much as possible uh, because he wanted them, once they added things computer-wise, to feel real and, and everything. Um, and, yeah, I just, the the design work here, I never don't buy it. Yeah. Like, I feel like I'm actually in this other world. And maybe it's because I know I'm in a computer, so my mind can let it go. But yeah. the difference of the look here and the the trailers for Ready Player One are astounding. Yeah. Because this... here I buy the aesthetic. Yeah. There I don't buy the aesthetic. And I don't know what it is, but something they did here turned out perfectly. Everything has a weight in this universe like you can feel the weight mm -hmm. of these cg creations and one of the th reasons why this movie holds up so well for me is because the digital environments are so beautiful and the the design elements of the film are so amazing and looking at it now i compare it a lot to how i feel about rogue one you know and like rogue one is my favorite star wars movie and a lot of it is because of how the movie is designed and how it looks and it's just an absolute work of art to be watching while you're watching these movies. And, you know, this movie probably prepared me for Star Trek Discovery in a different way where it's like, we're going to update and modernize the way these things look because you don't really want us to do what we did in 1982 now. You want it to look modern. And that's like Star Trek Discovery for me right now as well. You don't want 1966. You want now for special effects. And I think that this movie kind of helped me prepare for the changes in Discovery seven years before I knew it was even going to happen. Uh, I, I find that interesting. I, I, I think that's cool. Um, for no, 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 no. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not being dismissive. I, I, I like. I like where you. No, I'm saying I like where you went with that. Like I, 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 I cool, swear to you, wrong. I'm not. No, no, no. I, I'm right. not saying it in I mean, that, I think in that you're sense wrong, at all. But John doesn't. No. Um, you know, but I, I would say that the difference here, the reason that these digital environments feel and and look and uh, uh, just resonate, you know, as so real and believable, I, I do think Matt, you're right. There's an element. I know in my brain I'm in computer world. And so if I see something that doesn't bounce quite right or something, I'm like, that's because that's how things work in computer world. But if I'm watching this, the thing I note is that even when you're dealing with, you know, the digital stuff or the digital planes or the light cycles or anything like that, the camera movements, the use of the camera is done in such a way that Kaczynski doesn't go nuts and all Michael Bayish in a Transformers movie, where like the cameras where you know it can't exist and it's spinning around and and you know sixteen different things are moving in twenty different directions while the camera's moving in a fourth you know a fourth axis that I didn't even know existed and stuff like that. 
Kaczynski moves the camera as if he he's shooting models. And I think that's why the digital stuff holds up so incredibly well. And, you know, Kaczynski and his cinematographer and his effects team. When I say Kaczynski, I mean the entire creative team that put this together, that storyboarded it and everything like that. They put it together smartly. And I think that's why uh, the effects do hold up. But they let it linger on the shots as well, which is mm-hmm. one thing that frustrates me so much about Discovery is like with with that scene where they're going up and down that spiral and then that cool video game sound is happening right in mm-hmm. in Tron when they're on the light cycles. Like they let it linger on that shot for a little while. Mm-hmm. And you get to see what's going on. Right. And I love that. They take their time and they let you look at the beauty that they've created. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Part of that's money. I mean, you have the money to linger on an effect shot in a, you know, feature film that you don't necessarily on television. Um, but I, I, I but just don't, I, I don't, I, th- I guess I don't understand that. Like, if you've spent all this money to create the shot and you've created all this digitally, like, can you not just hit play on it and like elaborate it and let it go farther? I guess I just don't understand how digital stuff is made. You know, I, I, th- I think, again, it goes all the way back to the director and the creative team vision of knowing what they want and not. Uh, there was an article yeah. that came out, in, I think it was in Gadget, where they talk about the digital models that everybody's been talking about in Black Panther that weren't particularly successful. And they use it as, as, as a time to talk to people in the industry, including somebody who spoke anonymously or whatever, but like um, where they talk about the fact that directors change their minds. Like, you know, they're, they're like, they'll be like, okay, give, give me this shot. And then the director's like, no, I changed, I want this instead and stuff like that. That I encourage anybody who hasn't, uh, who hasn't read the article. I, I'm, I'm pretty sure it's on Engadget. But anyway, um, I think that speaks to the idea of a director and a creative team knowing what they want and not changing their mind halfway through. They decided they wanted that shot and that gave the effects team the time to create it and love it and and make it work as opposed to I think there are a lot of movies you could point to now where, again, just the camera and everything's moving around so much you don't even know what the director was thinking uh, when he composed the scene, you know? Well, and I I, I think you're absolutely right, uh, is that um, what you get is directors changing their minds because they think that the visual effects company can just snap their fingers and basically make things happen at the last minute. And what we got here, and I think something that um, Lucas really, again, I'm going to call it Lucas, he he pioneered this because he didn't want to waste money. Mm -hmm. It was his own money on effect shots they didn't need. So he meticulously still storyboarded, but then they did they started doing the uh 3D mm-hmm. uh animation storyboards so they could get the shot the way they want it and then they can complete that shot and they know that that's what they want because they've already done all that work to make sure they have everything they need. Um and I do think that that is something that you get with great visionary directors where they know what they want mm-hmm. and then they can get that on screen and then you can give it to the visual effects people so that they can do it. And I can think of, um, you know, uh, any Chris Nolan movie, Chris knows exactly what he wants mm-hmm. and that's the shot they get. Whether it has to be digital or it has to be a model, 
they're gonna they're gonna get that shot and they're gonna make it perfect. Um, I honestly think um, if you've seen any uh, Zack Snyder movie except for uh, Justice League, he does the same thing. He knows what he wants with the shot and they get that shot, and then the digital effects people get their opportunity, and then they grade it all, and you feel mm-hmm. like you're watching one seamless thing, you know? So it, I think it really does come down to Krasinski having that vision, like you said, John, you called out everybody who's involved, but it does come down to Krasinski having the vision of what he wants and making sure that he gives his people enough time to work on it. And, I mean, from the costumes that are just phenomenal oh my gosh. to the look of the light cycles to the to the production design in and out of buildings on the grid. Um, and even when you're in the real world, the design work is is beautiful. I mean, yeah. being back in, in Flynn's, you know, and... Um, the way they use the sound design with the music there is it's playing those songs on the um, the jukebox, which are completely in line with the things that are about to happen with the movie. So it's like everything is working to create a vision that is cohesive and holistic as the movie itself. And I think that's, to me, what makes this movie kind of a, you called it out earlier, Brandon, a masterpiece is that everything is working together to create a whole vision that this this director had and it's really on screen for us now which leads me to ask you one last thing i mean we'd be really dumb everybody be like why didn't you talk about daft punk soundtrack but i can't imagine this movie without daft punk this is one of the greatest (laughs) scores of the 21st century this is probably the greatest score of the 21st century like that's that's I I can't tell you how many times I've listened to this. It is absolutely perfect for the movie. And in and of itself, it is a work of art. Agree. I I, I would never presume to debate soundtracks with you um, to begin with. But I do agree that that the soundtrack is amazing. No matter like I even knew people who didn't particularly care for the film who still bought the soundtrack because they were like, that music was amazing. And I think that uh, no small... Part of it isn't just Daft Punk, but the silent assist they got from Hans Zimmer, um, you know, as evidenced by the <laughs> the drums in certain scenes. Where it was like, ah, oh, that's Hans Zimmer. OK, um, but, uh, you know, that uh, I can't put into words how many times I've listened to this soundtrack. Like, I, I can't even estimate it. Like it's still in heavy rotation. If I gotta like focus on something at work and I'm like writing or something like that, like, all right, Tron Legacy soundtrack, and it, it goes on, and I just zone out. And I'm elsewhere. Yeah, yeah. I, I'm so glad to find that people actually do like this because you know you hear a lot of people, and I, as I learn with soundtracks and stuff, you get a lot of people that they're like, oh, I don't like synthetic scores, and and I, I'm finding that what they what they mean when they say they don't like a synthetic score is when you're trying to make a sound like a symphony. Mm-hmm. using a computer program mm. and where this is a different level altogether because they're not trying to make it sound like a symphony. They've got symphonic elements, but they, they've they got this highly digital, you know, Daft Punk style music in here. And I mean, like I go to one of my other favorite scores. I mean, like I really love the music for the girl with the dragon tattoo as well, you know, by Trent Reznor. But um, like this, this is a different kind of, symphonic score and i'm really glad to find out that people really do love the music for this movie because it it is brilliant it is amazing it is beautiful it is epic it is 
everything you could possibly want out of this movie. And that's another reason that elevates this movie for me is because the music is so perfect and it's such an integral part of the movie. Mm -hmm. I think that the genius of it is, is that it knows when to sound more symphonic and when it and it knows when to be a more more electronic, but it never leaves that synthetic electronic sound. But there's a slightly more symphonic part to the score, and there's a there's a much more you know obviously Daft Punk feel to it, and and the way that they blend those two together, I think is is so well done, so that e- you have the right moment at the right time. It you know it's it's the perfect cue when you need it, and it's it's a it's a really well done, really well crafted um, part of the film, and the fact that it's so integral to the movie. But I, I would say this: the the great thing about the 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 legacy soundtrack is it isn't like um, say Zimmer's score for uh, Dunkirk, where that so ingrains the movie. But it's not something I necessarily want to listen to outside the film. Right. Um, it is. It's so a part of that movie. I. But I. I don't. It's. It's not as enjoyable to listen. This has enjoyment to it outside of the movie, one hundred percent. Because, like you guys said, I just turn on it work when I'm working or you know whatever, and it just kind of, I just gives you enough pep, you know, to get through the rest of the day. So it's yeah, it's fantastic. There's one part of it, though, so I said earlier there's three things in the movie that don't really work for me. One of them has to do with the music, and that's when the battle sequence happens in the bar. Oh. And Daft Punk, they turn to each other, and they're like, they nod, and they, like, drop a beat while everybody's battling. I'm like, oh, that is just what? a little too cheesy for me. No. Oh, bite your tongue. <laughs> no, that's, the, that's genius tongue. right there. I that, like the me. track. That... It's just the shot of them turning to each other and be like, yeah, let's drop a beat. Yeah. I'm like, oh, did you have to have that one shot in there? That, just that one shot. That is the moment where I uh, I am completely dismissive of your opinion, Brandon. So you finally, <laughs> finally had it happen. <laughs> I love it. Okay, guys. I think people know where this is going to go. But what is your rating for Tron Legacy? Well, my my letterbox rating on this, I give it a four and a half out of five. And, you know, it's it's basically a perfect movie for me. I just those couple little things that I have in it that just bring it down just a little bit for me. But for your funny rating system, I'm going to have to give this four out of four drop techno beats during a battle. Nice. Nice. I like that. <laughs> I like that. Um, I, I, I'm going to up it and I'm going to give it uh five out of five overclocked CPUs, uh, because <laughs> yeah, because that's where my brain went. That's I, I seriously, I, this, this is, um, and as time continues to test it, uh, Tron legacy is solidifying itself as one of my favorite films, like period. Like it, this would be like a desert Island, uh, movie type of thing. Or it's yeah. like I would want to. I I I enjoy revisiting Tron Legacy uh, on, on a fairly regular basis. Uh, you know what? Um, I'm just gonna give this. Wow, that's a big door. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so uh, this is. It, I mean, everything we've said about it is just 100 percent true. It's it's a great film. If you haven't seen it, go watch it. Um, if you haven't seen it, I don't know why. If you haven't seen it in a while, go back and watch it. It you're gonna enjoy it. 
Um, I, I, I'm right there with both of you. Like, this is a movie I feel like I could pretty much pop on any time and sit through the whole thing and just completely enjoy it. Um, and and continue to just think more and more about it. You know, <laughs> like we did tonight, where we talked for I'm pretty sure at least forty minutes about the philosophy behind so many of these uh these things that are happening in it and and again that was only one small part of the movie there's so much more we could talk about but i really appreciate you guys joining us i appreciate our associate producers here through patreon ken trip and davis grayson and they make this possible each and every week for us to come to you um here on the 602 club and of course the entire network um it's a really big thing it's a it's just track events huge like look at all the shows that we have and there's no way that we can make that happen without um support from the listeners just like you go over to patreon.com slash trek fm see how you can support us each and every month every little bit helps um we have some great perks for you at different uh production levels uh again it doesn't have to be a lot really every Every little bit, you know, a few dollars a month makes a big difference. So go over to patreon.com slash trekfm and be part of the team. Uh, Brandon, great having you back here to talk about Tron Legacy. Uh, if anybody wants to talk to you about the movie or anything else that you've got going on, where can they find you? You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Matella. And you can find me here on the network with a show called The Edge, which is our Star Trek Discovery podcast. And you can also find me here on the network with Warp 5, uh, which is our Star Trek Enterprise podcast. Plus, I'm also over on the Fandom Podcast Network talking about Hitchcock films on a show called Good Evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast. And we now have our own independent feed for that show, but we are still a part of the Fandom Podcast Network. So uh, it's a lot of fun. We just finished up our last silent film uh, of Hitchcock's. So we're just about to enter into these the talkies, you know, that, that era that they didn't think would last. <laughs> man well it has lasted and john you've won a parsec award for talkies oh, uh where can people find you oh well gosh uh of course i'm kessel junkie uh on the newly popular vero uh social platform which is kind of cool um if, if if anybody uh wants to check that one out but uh that's the one that's not available in canada that you told me about right oh is that unavailable in canada i think that's the one you told me about and I'm man, like, i, I feel bad now I'm not going to leave it or anything, but like, I feel bad now. <laughs> well, anyway, uh, you can also find me, um, you know, over on uh, the the Ether co-hosting Words with Nerds with my pal Craig. And then if you go over to the Nerd Party Network, I'm uh, co-hosting Great Shot Kid with Mike Schindler. And I am co-hosting Aggressive Negotiations, a Star Wars podcast with a uh, delightful gentleman. Uh, by the name of Matthew Rushing. Well, and you can find that guy over on Twitter. I'm MattRushing02 and Instagram under the same name. I'm on Vero, too, so you can find me there uh, under my name. Uh, You can also find me on the network doing the Orb, Chris Jones, talking about Deep Space Nine. I am also on the Nerd Party Network doing Outpost with Drea Kaufman, talking about Harry Potter each and every week, one chapter at a time. We're in the Goblet of Fire, so check it out. Uh, Aggressive negotiations, and of course, last but not least, I'm doing cinema stories with my friend Courtney as we talk through films uh, pretty specific lens of faith and so I hope you'll check it out you can find all of our podcasts where Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts so I hope you'll subscribe to my shows Brandon's as well as John's and I want to say thank you so much for joining us 
and y'all come back down here.